environment itself a poem? The environment is definitely a poem. The environment is is a poem that is in constant need of revision. <laughs> That's poet Major Jackson. This is Dropping In, a podcast from Omega Institute, exploring the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Karen Michelle. This is a spoiler alert about a different podcast you may want to check out. It's called The One You Feed. The title comes from a parable about the two wolves inside of us. The one identified as good and that other bad. They battle. The one that wins is the one you feed. You decide. And for some great guidance along the way, listen to Eric Zimmer's talks with all sorts of people with advice for living a fuller life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Consider it a meal for your inner wolf. Major Jackson is the poetry editor of the Harvard Review, author of four books of poetry, and winner of lots of prizes, including the Cave Canaan Poetry Prize for her first book. All that, and along with two Pulitzer Prize-winning Poets Laureate, Jackson is a member of the Dark Room Collective, founded in the late 1980s as a community of black writers. Jackson was invited to teach and read his work at Orion Magazine's Environmental Writers Workshop, hosted annually at Omega Institute in New York's Hudson Valley. Orion brings together fiction and nonfiction editors and writers to share their work and experiences. The first night of readings, in a building off in the woods, inspiration showed up just outside the glass doors when a black bear emerged. Though Major Jackson's poems describe a very urban experience, he also alludes to nature, whether it's described in a book he read or experienced through the windshield of a car he's in, as it was with his first poem of the evening. We were coming from a dinner party and a bear uh, crossed our path and we just stopped and turned off the lights and just marveled uh, at the moment. Uh, It's called The Romantics of Franconia Notch. Matthew Dickman and I are fond of resurrecting the spotted faces of state troopers and small-town police we've met over the years. We love their melodrama, the way they peel their aviators in the rearview mirror of my Jetta as they approach the car like shy teenagers on a first date, (laughs) then doff their stiff brim hats with their yellow braids. There was the pastel-loving cop in Eugene, fond of Art Deco motels in South Beach, and the comic book fan in Littleton, New Hampshire, who unlatched his gun holster, and the one tormented by Goethe's propositions, and thus let us curl like through a few hymns before issuing a roadside warning in Randolph, Vermont. When they asked us where we're going, we almost always respond, to the town square, of course, to give the park back to the wretched men in their brown bags of sorrow. We want the crime squad to know we have a purpose, that we sugar our regrets with the honeyed lines of Brodsky, Pessoa, and Thoreau when we were declaiming just that evening, zipping in the dark past the low-lit colonials when a black bear jumped out as though chased by the ghost of the bear he used to be, and Matthew turned up Jay-Z's black album so he'd get a boost and lurch into further darkness. 
this is called physical geography as modified by human action. One could listen to the whole of Kamasi Washington's The Epic and not understand the flora of the scream as antediluvian gesture or how the symmetrical damask weave of a trumpet solo is the calling to fill the carvings of the California black oak, which is currently dreaming of fossilized gang signs engraved on the trunk of our imagination. Or to stretch that point somewhat when driving through Inglewood to hear the puzzle of a people who suffered centuries dark as plagues, more operatic than Puccini, although the saxophonist who hates group narcissism clings to a conviction that makes his sweat our salvation and his rapid moans our secret knowledge and his curled haiku-like fingers the hope of a democracy, each of us pressing forward into our improvised dream all I think while reading Marsh's Man and Nature on American Airlines nonstop to Orlando, having just kicked off my wingtips and revolted against my mind's wish to jazz the evening lights below into some vague allegory of progress or evidence of our ongoing dreadful fear, the plane's low hum, a measure of perceived calm and goodness. We are alone and keep our improvisations hidden in our earbuds, even though each flattened fifth is a mini-sermon on the power of endless life. So my fingers fidget and jiggle a mini-bag of peanuts when the stewardess announces we are presently crossing a zone of turbulence. Hmm. Each flattened fifth is a mini-sermon, the poetry of music transformed into the poetry of language. As in so many of his poems, Major Jackson's primary environment is the sonic rather than the natural landscape. He often writes about musicians and music. He calls it creating his soundtrack. For him, poetry is, by nature, all-encompassing, which makes sense in light of his surprising academic background as an accountant. So do you think of poetry as a sort of accounting? You know, what's interesting is that there is an element, like all of the arts, there's an element of symmetry. And when we think about accounting, we look for, in fact, a, the, <laughs> a very perfect financial statement tells a story, both in terms of its numbers, but also um, in terms of, of what are the values of a, of a particular organization. So... I tend to kind of um, look for those multiple narratives. And one might say that some of that was, um, that sense of order was nurtured through my education as an accountant. I don't want to discount that, that side of my brain. <laughs> There's more of Major Jackson's poetry and my interview with him coming up. You'll hear his thoughts on the relationship between the land and the people who dwell on it, whether that land is wild or tamed. But first, some, well, accounting. For more than 40 years, Omega has been hosting workshops and retreats on yoga, mindfulness, art, sustainability, women's leadership, health. It's a rich mix of more than 350 programs annually. And with this podcast, I'm introducing you to some of the remarkable teachers exploring Omega's mission to awaken the best 
in the human spirit. To learn more about Omega, visit eomega.org. That's E-O-M-E-G-A dot O-R-G. Let's get back. Song as a bridge thesis of George Perkin Marsh's Man and Nature. The pendulous branches of the Norway spruce slowly move as though approving our gentle walk in Woodstock. And the oak leaves yellowing this early morning fall in the parking lot of Marsh Billings Rockefeller. We hear beneath our feet their susurrus as the churning of wonder, found too in the eyes of a child who has just sprinted toward a paddock of Jersey cows. The fate of the land is the fate of man. Some have never fallen in love with a river of grass or rested in the dignity of the great blue heron standing alone, saint-like in a marshland, nor envied the painted turtle sunning on a log, nor thanked, as I have, the bobcat for modeling how to navigate dynasties of snow. For he survives in both forests and imaginations away from the dark hands of developers and myths of prophets. The fate of the land is the fate of man. Some are called to praise as holy hillocks, ponds, and brooks to renew the sacred contract of live things everywhere. The cold, pensive mornings of clouds above Mount Tom to extol silkworm and barn owls, gorges and veils, the killdeer, egret, turn, and loon. Some must rest at the sandbanks and deep wilderness by a lagoon, estuaries or floodplains standing in the way of the human storm. The fate of the land is the fate of man. You have the refrain, the fate of the land is the fate of man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you repeat it, I think, three times. I do, that's right, yeah. Is your fate the fate of the land? Mm. Of course, that's a very good question. (laughs) Yes, I, I, I really do believe that. I happen to be fortunate enough to live in, um, I've been living in Burlington, Vermont, and in um, the Green Mountain National Forest for 16 years. And it has alerted me to some of the issues that we face um, as a species. And I didn't, I, I didn't preface that quote, but it comes from George Perkin Marsh, uh, Man and Nature, the first arguably um, treatise um, uh, call to arms on protecting uh, the environment. The fate of the land is the fate of man. Um, so to some extent, I, I really do believe it's not, of course, I'm using man to represent humankind. And I know that that's problematic in terms of, in terms of gender. But, um, but one could argue that without a vigilant attitude towards natural resources, towards how we um, treat 
and think about ecosystems, particularly the animals there and their role in that ecosystem, that um, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. I happen to be someone who really does believe that um, climate change and the, the, the shifts that are happening um, is owed to our not taking care of both our inner selves as well as, so there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship there. Others far more um, articulate in this subject matter have discussed it. I happen to believe it because I feel my body change when I moved into a more natural space. I felt it. But I wonder if it's not inverted now that the fate of man is the fate of the land. Because as more people are becoming urban again, moving mm -hmm. back into the cities, they're destroying the green space to build more apartment buildings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I meant earlier. Even even um, even in a college town like Burlington, Vermont, you you see some of the farmland give way to, um, and these farms are you know, Vermont prides itself on farm to table. Well, soon enough, it's just going to be tables and <laughs> farms to um, to support our appetite. So I think, you know, having a balanced perspective on these particular matters, I think is crucial and, and essential. I realize that that poem is engaging in, in polemics, um, but it comes from an earnest, earnest belief. Rembrandt took the best selfies. <laughs> it's my turn to wrestle light out of this blur of death. It's my turn to dignify a gilded frame with an imperial profile. What is left of me drifts like a cloud curling above a village spire. It's my turn to isolate evil like the barbed wire of a fence post. Behind my grim stare is jubilance, which never grows old. Below this feathered hat is the first morning of man. All canvases are temples to my bright exhalations. I welcome your vigils. Think not of looted countries. Think not of the tyrant's clammy grasp of your hand as he guides you to his first pimple, nor his unethical single pill of a hard-boiled egg, which is a faint performance of ego. He's preparing to eat your babies. Can you guess when I wrote that? Narcissism, Rembrandt, self-portrait, themes. Um, <laughs> uh, so here's a poem. Last, you know, I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Bishop, and I had, I love her poem, um, The Moose. And when I moved to Vermont, I thought, I'm going to see moose every time I go out <laughs> in the wilderness. Not true. Not true, but I wanted that experience um, until last year, driving along Route 125, I saw a moose. And then the next day, 
I saw a different moose going back there. That has nothing to do with the poem. Uh, this is called You Reader. So often I dream of the secrets of satellites. And so often I want the moose to step from the shadows and reveal his transgressions. And so often I come to her body as though she were lookout mountain. But give me a farmer's market to park my martyred mass, and I will name all the dirt roads that dead end at the cubist sculpture called My Infinity. For I no longer light bonfires in the city of adulterers, and no longer smudge the cheeks of debutantes hurriedly floating across the high fruit of night. And yes, I know there is only one notable death in any small town, and that is the pig farmer. But listen, at all times, the proud rivers mourn my absence, especially when, like a full moon, you, reader, hidden behind a spray of night blooming, drift in and out of scattered clouds above lighthouses producing their artificial calm, just to sweep a chalk of light over distant waters. This was a long winter uh, for us in northern New England, and I got a lot of poems. I normally don't write about nature, not directly, uh, but how can you not in the deep, dark winter? Winter. The boughs have been naked for weeks. Snow plows scrape the highway clean of its sugar. People withdraw into their nests and study the language of fire. A group of high school girls on their way home in the afternoon dark falls into an embankment and flaps their arms and legs as though clouds swimming towards the coming world. The blank silence of dead earth forces us to gaze up, harvest the black music that belongs to all the eyes in the future who will also turn to the spheres and study to whatever light to fill their emptiness. Now, you're at an environmental writers conference. You're being presented as an environmental writer. And I think the default assumption about environmental writers is that it's nature. Mm -hmm. But your environment is very urban and your poetry references both nature, the Adirondacks, for mm -hmm. example, a bear, mm -hmm. and urban environment. Do you see a difference in terms of when you write about the environment, does it matter whether there are paved roads or no roads? Mm. Landscape is in us. And so wherever we travel, we bring that consciousness with us. For me, it's in my poems. And so if we're going to talk about environment, we have to stretch out ideas of what we mean by the environment, what we, need, what we mean by uh, natural spaces, because those are as much um, emotional and interior as they are exterior. And what we come to accept iconically as, as that, that particular literature that pays attention, quote unquote, to, to uh, the terra firma, the earth and its inhabitants, its creatures. Fortunately for me and, and a number of, of friends, 
um, who grew up in the city and write about the city. Many of us are are the descendants of families who came from the South and have very strong connections. My um, family hailed from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, small towns in between, and on my father's side, uh, Georgia and uh, the Carolinas. And so Summers was an adventure in changing landscapes and even relationship to time, I would say. Uh, One very much slowed down. Uh, So I guess that's what I mean is that uh, those memories, those impressions are still there and they all intermingle. Is the environment itself a poem? The environment is definitely a poem. The environment is is a poem that is in constant need of revision. <laughs> I hope you'll keep an ear open for the next episode of Dropping In for a different perspective on poetry and the environment from Orion's Environmental Writers Workshop with Anne Haven McDonald. She lives and teaches in the American Southwest, desert lands. I've never seen a bear bared to air skinned to a pearled blue, the color of inside shells or secrets. Dropping In is a presentation of Omega Institute, dedicated to awakening the best in the human spirit. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new ears find us. And to learn more about Omega, visit our website at eomega.org. I'm Karen Michelle. Remember to check out The One You Feed. It's a podcast that'll feed you. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about the show, go to www.whenyoufeed.net. Dropping In is produced and edited by me. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. And Rob Harris is the executive producer. Thanks for dropping in. Dropping In.